0: Um, I want to take that verse that you just heard three times and really utter that over you as a congregation, all of you. You will be priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. You will be priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. Some years ago, Henry Nouwen said he served as a chaplain in a sea vessel. One day, the vessel was headed out to the high seas and a storm was coming quickly. Waves were beginning to wash over the hull of the ship. And the captain was appropriately nervous. He's up in the bridge. He's got his officers around him. And he's barking orders one after the other. And then he came to the priest. Father Nouwen And he didn't know what to do with the priest. And so he stopped for a moment and just said, and you, why don't you go down below? And if I need something, I'll send for you. Now and use that to say, this is what's happening to the ministry in our day. Ministers who were once on the bridge helping to make the decisions that would navigate society have now been sent down below where they will be called if or when we need them. A couple of years ago, when we went into the thick of a pandemic, there was some evidence that maybe the good priest was right. Governors from one part of the country to the other began to declare, not all of them, thankfully not our own, that religious assemblies were non-essential gatherings. Do you remember this? They divided gatherings into essential and non-essential And some of them declared that religious assemblies were non-essential, and I'm quoting now the congressional report, because churches were treated similarly to comparable secular organizations. Churches, of course, from one end of the country to the other, protested vehemently on two grounds. One was government overreach. We argued that the governor or the mayor does not have the authority to determine legally whether churches can gather or not. The other is we complained of an inconsistency that had gone rampant. Some organizations or some places like hair salons and tattoo parlors were considered essential while religious assemblies were not. In the city of Louisville, Kentucky, the mayor forbade even drive-in churches where members stayed in their cars, but at the same time allowed drive-through liquor stores. In the city of New York, the mayor forbade gathering in churches and in synagogues, but at the same time encouraged and even attended public gatherings in the form of protests in the streets. In most cases, when the church brought its argument to a higher court, believe this or not, the churches won the day. The higher courts, not the supreme, but the federal courts upheld the case of churches. But here's the irony at that time. All the while we were arguing for the right to assemble, we were not arguing the premise. We were arguing the outcome. We were not arguing that our gatherings were essential. We were arguing that they were constitutional. We didn't argue, you need us. We argued, that's not fair. Which raises the question, if you win with the wrong argument, have you still won? Or have you won the argument and given up precious ground? At the end of the day, when the smoke cleared, The question lingers in the mind of the nation. Why do we need a priest on the bridge? What is the purpose of a holy man or a holy woman for the well-being of society? What is it that a religious assembly can do that no other entity in the nation can do for itself? About this time, I was... Having devotions in Exodus, I came across this passage in Exodus chapter 19, and when I saw it, I knew that it needed more time. This is Yahweh speaking to Moses just after they've come through the Red Sea. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, You will be my treasured possession. Word literally means my private collection. You will be my private collection. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you must speak to the Israelites when I read it, a few things immediately jumped into my mind. And you can see why it needed more time. First, this is God speaking to Israel, calling her a kingdom. And she's not yet even a nation. She has no land she has no government, she has no king, she has no laws, she has no constitution. All of that will come later. But here is God at the seminal stage of Israel's life declaring that she will be a kingdom. Not only that, he is rooting her kingdom in her function not in her territory he is not saying you will be a kingdom and this will be your land he is saying you will be a kingdom of priests and you will live and serve as a priest to the world the way that a priest serves his parish because after all Israel the world is my parish and every parish needs a priest This is God making a declarative statement. He's not asking Israel to think about it, pray about it, and if you feel so moved, then maybe you'll step up into the priesthood. No, he is declaring this fiat because God can over an entire nation before it's a nation. Anyone who will be in this community of people will be to the world what a priest is to their parish. And he's saying this over the entire nation. Even though people live in different places, they have different jobs, different roles. Some of them are educated, some of them... Barely educated at all, God is making a blanket statement over everyone in Israel and says, This world needs a priest, and you will be for me their priest. Wow. But plans sometimes fail. Especially when humans are involved. Ten chapters later in Exodus chapter 29, God will identify Aaron as the one who is to be the lead priest. God says to Israel, you are to place your hands on Aaron and you are to ordain him and his sons. And when you ordain him, then I will live among you. Here's a window into the way God thinks. As long as you have a priest, I can live there. I will take up residence in the life of a priest. A few chapters later, Moses is up the mountain having a conversation with God. God, in fact, is writing the Constitution for Israel. What we now call the Ten Commandments, it was Israel's Constitution. And while he is up there, the Israelites are at the base of the hill. And they start to get restless, as would-be priests like to do. And they turn to Aaron and they say, we need, we need something to worship here. And Aaron, Aaron says, take your jewelry, melt it down, and we will make a calf like the ones the Egyptians used to worship, and we will gather around that calf, and we will worship, and this is what they do, and God looks down, and he is livid, you can see why, because he has identified Aaron to be the lead priest over a nation of priests, and now the lead priest is leading the other priests in idolatry, Moses comes down the mountain carrying the constitution in two stone tablets. He looks down the base of the mountain and when he sees it, he takes his tablets and he smashes the constitution in front of the people as if to say, the deal is off. God calls Moses back up the mountain and reiterates, the deal is off. You tell those people that they are to go forward into the land I told you to go, but I myself will not go. Why? Because if I go, I might kill them for this. I am so hurt. Moses starts to negotiate with God up on the mountain by himself, while Israel is still down frolicking. And this is the first time in the whole Bible where we get a window into the kind of work priests do. There in a private conversation with Yahweh, Moses begins to negotiate a better deal for Israel. And Israel has no idea this is going on. They will never thank him for this because they did not know it. And Moses says to Yahweh, if you do not go with us, don't send us up from here. What will separate us from all other nations in the earth if you don't go with us? Here in a moment, we see the role of a priest. They step into that gap between God and the public. And they do for the one what the other needs. God needs a human voice. And so with his back to heaven, the priest will speak on behalf of God to the world. And the world needs a divine audience or they have no chance. So with his back to the people, the priest will begin to negotiate new possibilities for Israel. God relents, he decides to go with him. But the dream of one day having a nation where everyone was a priest goes silent. It's dormant for years. Generation after generation after generation comes and goes. Israel changes one oppressor for another. And with every new oppressor, Israel is more and more angry. She is in the streets crying for justice. She is talking about unrighteousness. She wants political change. She is tired of the man, tired of the system. But the entire season, the dream of a priest goes unnoticed. Until one night, just on the eve of her exile, Israel, about to go into exile, stumbles into church one night, and a preacher named Isaiah gets up. He's found the dream, people. And Isaiah begins to outline the job description of a priest And he says to his audience that night, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has anointed me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those who are mourning, to put a garment of praise over people in despair. He's outlining what priests will do for the public. And then he turns to the people and says, and you will be priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. And they looked at him the way that you're looking at me. No, he isn't. (laughs) We've not been to seminary. We aren't called to do this. We don't wear one of them collars. We can't be priests, but you're confusing the role of a priest with the function of a priest. The role is the position. It's the office. It's the training. It's the class of people like Aaron. The function is for somebody to get in between God and the public and make a deal for the public. And it doesn't matter what your job is. God, says Isaiah, has called you all to live and function as priests. It was the eve of exile, I say. And exile has a way of crushing every dream. As Israel staggers into captivity for 70 years and young people get old and die, the dream is put on hold. Seven centuries later, when everybody who had forgotten it was off pursuing things that were more important to them. Jesus came and founded a church. A new Israel. And the governors and the leaders of his day promptly rounded up that church and scattered them into exile. Thirty years after Jesus left, the church was meeting in small little enclaves, circles, all over the province. They couldn't get together people because the leaders had said they were non-essential gatherings. And they would meet in after hours and in far out places, so the leaders would not find their worship assemblies. And Peter, a preacher in that day, caught a glimpse of what Moses saw on the mountain and what Isaiah saw that night in the service. He caught a glimpse that God had not let go this dream of having a nation, a borderless kingdom of people who live as priests. He sat down to write a letter, and when he'd finished it, he sent it in a thousand directions. And these little enclaves of religious gatherings, Christians, scared out of their minds, would take these letters, and with candlelight, they would read them aloud in front of their little circles. And this is what Peter said to them. You are not who you think you are. You are living stones built into a spiritual house, a temple, and you are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Four verses later in 1 Peter chapter 2, he lifts the language straight out of Exodus 19 and reads it over these little Religious circles meeting in a thousand places. He says, You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into the light. It's back. You could feel the tide. Rising, Here were thousands of non-essential people, most of them doing menial things they couldn't find reasons for. And Peter caught a picture of their purpose in God's eyes and he read it over them. And they straightened up. It doesn't end there. Just as Peter sat writing that letter, looking behind him at the words of Moses and Exodus, he looked ahead of him and saw the words of John writing in the book of Revelation. For there in Revelation chapter 5, while John was trapped on the island of Patmos, he saw the heavens over his head open like a And everything he saw, he wrote down. And there in Revelation chapter 5, this is what he said. And I saw one seated on a throne, holding a scroll that no one could open. And then I turned, said John, and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, slain. Standing in the midst of the throne, and he went over and he took the scroll from the one seated on the throne, and he opened it and he started to read. And when the Lamb opened the scroll, everyone who was seated around the throne fell on their faces, and they began to sing a song to the Lamb, saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb who was slain, for you purchased for God people. from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. Wait for it. And you have made these people, all of them, to be a kingdom and priests. Here is God making a declarative statement. He has never changed His mind. We have moved the priesthood into a small class of people formally trained to perform mostly religious duties, roughly translated, run a church. This was never God's intention. From Exodus to Revelation, it's there. Everyone Christ has redeemed is a priest of the Most High God. He's not asking you to think about it. He's not asking you to pray about it. And maybe if you feel led, He's telling you This is who you are. You have more authority than you know and way more authority than you use. Jesus said of you, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. John chapter 20, he breathed on us the Holy Spirit and said whatever you forgive is forgiven. You have incredible authority. Live up to it, church. All right. Can I plead my case? Uh, that wasn't my case. That was the argument. And it is, it is biblically sound from one end of Scripture to the other. Here's my case. In spite of how they like to present themselves as not that interested in religion, The truth is, people, every person you've ever met is incurably religious. They can't help themselves. Ecclesiastes said they have eternity stamped on their heart. It's indelible. So they'll tell you on the one hand that they don't even believe in God but on the other hand they hold pastors and clergy in a separate level like they want them to be different. They'll say that nothing is sacred and yet they will dress up for weddings and funerals. And when something goes south they still want somebody to pray. And they sit and they wonder all of them What happens after I die? No other species does this. Only humans. And the fact that you're asking the question ought to tell you something about you. Even when you deny it, you are incurably religious. And so while our nation pretends that it is through with God it can't get over the memory of God so we live in a time of moral confusion where people still need God but they don't believe in him anymore until something happens and then they will come and ask somebody they know to pray to an unknown God maybe you know him I don't but I need every break I can get. Can you pray? They would turn to the churches, but most of them are not in churches anymore. Less than 20% in any state is physically in a church today. So they don't know any ministers and they don't know any priests. All they know is you. And even if they did know priests and ministers, priests and ministers today don't do what they used to do. For the last 70 years, the role of a minister has shifted from pastoral duties to administrating the church. Survey after survey today shows what ministers actually do 36 to 40 hours every week is administrate the church. Meanwhile, the public is still in prison. The public is still addicted. The hearts are still broken and people are still mourning. And there is a ton of despair out there while ministers from one end of the country to the other. (sighs) are building churches. Jeez. People, we don't need another institution. This is a triage unit. We need someone who knows how to speak life to people trapped in addictive styles, someone who will listen to a broken heart instead of refer them to, oh, wait for it, a professional. Just listen. You'd be surprised what you don't have to know. If you listen. So rather than tell you what priests do, let me tell you when somebody needs one. They still need somebody to pray. Most people don't think much about God, so they think God doesn't think much about them. They are wrong. And then something happens, and they don't know how to get hold of God. They don't even know a preacher or a priest. But they know you because you work with them. They'll come to you and they'll say, uh, well, maybe would you pray? Pray. Don't send them one of these praying for you thing. Pray. Articulate in front of them your desires for their life in front of God. Then, when you leave them, get up that mountain when they're not in the room and make a deal on their behalf. They will not thank you. They don't even know you're doing it. But they have no chance if you don't. Say they don't believe that. So... woman says to me, Reverend, would you write a prayer? She says, I have surgery tomorrow. Would you write a prayer? Why, I said. She said, so I can read it when I go into surgery. I said, you can can pray yourself, you know. She says, no, actually, I can't. I don't know what to say. So if you'll write something, I'll just read it. I said, I can write something, or if you want, I'll just meet you at the hospital and we'll pray there. She says, you do that? Well, that's what we did. It's not heroic. It doesn't feel sacramental, but I believe... That woman has possibilities when someone steps in and does that. You can listen to people confess their sins. People still need a confessor. In 1974, Frank Warren sent 3,000 postcards self-addressed out to random people and said, if you have a secret, send it to me. To this day, he's received over 500,000 postcards. One of them sent a picture of her and her husband with words written over it. Every week, I wonder how my life would be different if I'd have married the other man. Someone sent a picture of an ultrasound with words written over it I will never forgive myself for letting my girlfriend get an abortion. Someone sent a picture of their child with words written over it. I hope he doesn't turn out like me. Someone sent a picture of their high school with the words to the class of 1977, I still hate you all. Someone sent a postcard in that said, every week of my life I think about suicide. If you knew what I did, you'd want me dead too. A minister sent one in with himself in a clerical collar. And the words, sometimes it feels more like a noose. A woman sent a postcard in that said, when I was 16, I got an abortion. When I was 33, I had a miscarriage, I think. God is paying me back. We live in a society that has gone glib, where people say they don't want to go there. You live and work with people every day who need you to go there. And it is terribly inefficient. And you don't often feel like you're moving the ball, but people need someone to hear their sins and utter the words over them. In the name of Jesus, you are free. Go and sin no more. You say, I can't do that. You must. You must. They will not find me, and they won't find some other priest. You are all they have. You must. People need someone to help them sort life out. Too much of life falls between the answers. I was 25 years old. I finished the sermon that morning. A man met me at the door. He'd been coming five or six weeks, was dating a woman in our congregation. He said, Reverend, if you have time, I need to take a drive. Will you go with me? Certainly, I said. Two o'clock came. We got in the car and drove about 45 minutes to a different city outside of Detroit. On the way to wherever we were going, he told me the story of his marriage. My wife, he said, was a waitress in a local diner. One day a man came in to rob the diner. The police surrounded the place. There was a shootout through the windows. A stray bullet struck my wife, sent her into a coma. It was a head injury, he said. After several weeks of treatment, she came back and she was stable and I thought she was going to walk out, he said. And then all of a sudden, an infection got in the brain. How does this happen? And we lost her. She went into a vegetative state, and she has been in that state for almost five years. Reverend, he said, You are not prepared for what you are going to see. By then, we went up on the fourth floor. I walked into this room, and there was his wife in a wheelchair, set with her head to the side, in a stare out a window. If she blinked, Twice the entire time I was there. Completely unresponsive. He said she has been this way for almost five years. From what the physicians say, this could be seven more. We just don't know. I muttered a prayer. Got in the car and we drove back toward the house. And then he said now, Reverend, you might have noticed I've I've been dating a woman in your church. It meant something now. He said, but you can tell I'm married. Or am I? He said, Reverend... Marriage is a consensual arraignment. She cannot consent to anything anymore. And so far as we know, she will never be able to do it again. How do I honor the vows of this marriage when everything about it has changed? He's looking for a priest. He's looking for somebody who knows God. He thinks. He's not looking for answers. He can Google those. He's looking for somebody who he thinks is a holy man or a holy woman who will come alongside him and enter this struggle. And I think that is where most of the public is right now. For the last two years, while the streets were on fire with racial injustice, nearly every minister I know and most of the lay people I know have tried to play the prophet, say something clever and pithy and tweetable that will settle the argument. But I think people are still craving a priest. Prophets speak to the public, priests speak about the public in private. Prophets speak of injustice, priests speak of a heaviness of soul. Prophets have convictions. Priests have burdens, heavy burdens. Prophets are always confronting the public with their sins. Priests help carry them. When I was a sophomore in college, over it iwu i was in trouble all the time if you if you were in a position of authority i was your thorn in the flesh i hated authority and i loved to argue In my sophomore year, I was editor of the newspaper, and we had once again published a series of articles that had upset the administration, and so we were fighting again, me and the administration. And I went home at Thanksgiving for break, and when I got in the living room, my mom and dad were there, and they had already heard the news. Things are blowing up with Steve and Iwu. We were five minutes into an argument, my dad and I, when my mother stood up and said, well, I'm going upstairs to bed. My dad stayed in the living room, and we went at it. When he felt something was wrong, he wasn't afraid to argue, and as a sophomore in college, I knew everything, and so... I wasn't afraid to argue, and for more than an hour, we went at each other. Conviction versus conviction, neither side, relenting. And finally, he'd had enough, and my dad got up and said, well, I'm going upstairs. I said, good night. He went upstairs, and I never heard anything for 30 minutes. For 30 minutes, I sat in the living room by myself looking at a wall. For 30 minutes, I sat there rehearsing these arguments, these deep convictions that were raging in my blood. And then after 30 minutes, I heard the sound of the floor creaking over my head. And I heard the sound of two people getting up off of their knees. And they crawled into bed. And then it was silent again. As long as you live, you will not get that sound out of your head. When you've just been in a room with somebody arguing tooth and nail and then you hear them get off their knees trying to make a deal for you downstairs that you know nothing about. Someday, if your life should suddenly turn and things get really good for you, you can thank education, but you will know in your heart It was that moment that someone went upstairs and made a deal. Now you have a chance you didn't have before. Church, listen to me. We've been in the living room long enough. Arguing with the public. it's time we went upstairs and got on our face before Almighty God and begged a deal for a public who cannot thank you. We have enough prophets. Dear God, Give us a few priests.